Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're doing things a little differently. Instead of chatting about a movie, we have an interview with a wonderful guest, the Paramount Studios expert and co-author of the Images of America Paramount Studios book series, Michael Cristaldi. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield, and today we have a very special show because we are not talking about a film today. We are talking about several films made at Paramount because we're actually talking about Paramount Studios with a Paramount expert, co-author of Images of America, early Paramount Studios, and Images of America, Paramount Studios, 1940 to the 2000s. We have co-author Michael Cristaldi here today. Hi, Michael. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. We're so excited to have you because you're just such a knowledgeable historian of Paramount. How did you get involved with Paramount Studios? How did you become this Paramount expert? Well, it's nice of you to say that. Um, well, ever since when I was a little kid, all my favorite shows seemed to be Paramount shows. And um, there was, you know, Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley and The Odd Couple. All my favorite movies were Paramount movies, The Godfather, Serpico, things like that. So at the end, I always associated Hollywood with Paramount because at the end of these things that Paramount card would come up with the mountain and the stars. So sometime in the late 80s, I had the opportunity to go out to LA and I was with some guys that had been there before and were taking a ride in the car. And lo and behold, we're going down Melrose Avenue and I looked to the left and there's Paramount Studios, first studio I ever saw in person. So I was like, oh, this is wonderful. You know, there it goes. That's where the dreams are made, you know? So I always um, wish there was a good book about Paramount Pictures done because a lot had been written on Warner Brothers, many, many books about uh, 20th Century Fox and Daryl Zanuck, MGM, of course. And I was leaving a bookshop in uh, Hollywood one night and a guy and his wife were walking in and the owner says, hey, hang on a second. He says, you guys should meet. And it was this guy, E.J. Stevens, who uh, is a co-author on um, the books. And we started talking and he had worked over at Warner Brothers. So he invited me to uh, lunch there and we were having lunch across the street from the studio. And I said to him, he had just did a book on Warner Brothers. And I said, uh, why don't you do a book on Paramount? And I said, I think it did really well. Not a lot has been written. And uh, he said, why don't you do it? I said, well, at the time I was an actor and I was doing some plays in New York and getting some bit parts and um, some like well-known shows and, and movies and whatnot, but nothing really you know, big. And uh, I said, what do I know about you know, writing books? And he says, I'm a, an actor. And he goes, well, let's do it together. So he emailed the publisher and within literally within minutes, we had a contract. So he said, when you get back home to New Jersey, he says, do the stuff, the proposal and all. He says, they're going to approve it and we'll do the book. So originally we set out to do the entire hundred year history of Paramount at that time, but it became too much. And the publisher called me and they said, it's, it's too much to do. Cut it off at some point. 
if the book is successful, then we'll do a second volume. So that's what we did. So we cut the first book, Early Paramount Studios, off in 1939, which killed me because for me, all my favorite stuff came after that. So uh, we cut it off in 1939. The book came out and uh, we went over to Paramount to do a book signing and we sold 2,000 copies in three days there. They were sending the books. They were calling me up on the phone. Can you get back to the studio? We need you to sign copies. They're sending them in gift bags over to Japan. So the book went everywhere. And uh, even the tour program, which is a wonderful tour program that they do over at Paramount. If you took the deluxe tour, they used to give you a copy of the book at the end of the tour. So, so the first book did really well. And uh, about two years after that, I got a call from the publisher. And they said, first book did well, still selling really well. Would you do it the second volume? And and that's what we did. And that's how Paramount Studios 1940 to 2000 came about. Well, and it's so interesting that you had mentioned that not a lot has been written about Paramount because they're one of the top, like the big five studios in LA. And they're one of the oldest movie studios in the world. So it's very interesting to me that not a lot had been written about it. Um, do you want to share with us Paramount's history? how it began, how it started, and why it's so special, essentially. I think a reason why, the reason why not a lot had been done on Paramount was, was their early history wasn't as um, easy as, say, Warner Brothers, where Warner Brothers was the Warner Brothers. You know, <laughs> they got involved in the theaters. They started making movies, and they went from there. And Paramount had several different people involved, but the most interesting of all was a man named Adolf Zucker, who, you know, I really grew uh, much affinity for after learning about him and writing about him. He really was a great man, but not as well known in the film business as other owners like Jack Warner or Daryl Zanuck and, you know, Louis B. Mayer at MGM, because Zucker was more of a businessman, not as and he didn't believe in like putting himself in front of the films where those guys sort of made themselves part of the show. Zucker was just about making money. And his story was he uh, started out, he was from Greece, Hungary, and uh, he had a brother and his parents died, both of them at a very early age. So uh, both him and his brother had to go into like a foster care system and these people in the town bought them in. The parents had money and they left some money, you know, to send the kids to school and whatnot. So the brother was in college and Adolf was working as a clerk in a store there. And people from the town who had immigrated to the United States would write letters back. And everybody would get around, go around and they would listen to these letters. And he wanted to go to the U.S. He knew that he would never own the store, but, you know, being a clerk there, and he was never going to get anywhere. He stayed in Hungary. So at 14, he asked the owners if he could have the money that his parents allocated for him to go to the U.S. And they said, you know, we'll have to talk to your brother about it. So his brother agreed. And at 15 years old, they sewed $40 into his coat. And he had some coin, which, you know, back then coin could probably get you, you know, a meal and, and get you around in his pocket. And he came to the U.S. and somebody from Hungary, they sponsored him and he started working in a furrier. Uh, so it was a place that, you know, like made furs and stuff. And he was like a clerk there and he was saving his money and he was saving his money. And eventually he opened up his own fire business. And he was actually, I, you may not remember this, but they used to have mink stoles and the stoles had the um, head of the mink on it. And they used to use the mouth to clip the other. It is really creepy. It's like wearing taxidermy like that. Ew. Ew. Right. And uh, he he's the one that created the the clasp for that. <gasps> So, so he was already an innovator. Yeah, so he was very successful at that time, and he was making a lot of money. And he made friends with another farrier, a guy named Marcus Lowe. And Marcus Lowe, which 
do you still see the Lowe's theaters, L-O-E-W-S theaters? So these guys were friends and um, somebody had opened up a, a penny arcade. So it was like a, an arcade that we would see now like on a boardwalk or the seashore point where people would go in and games of chance and stuff. And in there, they had these, you would put a penny in and you would flip the cards and you flip the cards real fast and it would make like a moving picture. And Zucker was like amazed by this. So with some other guys, he invested on 14th and Broadway in New York and he opened up his own arcade. And he noticed a lot of people were doing this with the, the cards, you know, just you put the penny in and flip the cards. So they were experimenting with film. He opened the theater a couple doors away and um, to show, you know, at the time Edison was doing stuff on film, like a man would like, you know, pull a gun and you know, pull a gun and shoot a gun or somebody would dance. And that was what people would watch, you know, as a film. So um, Zucker thought if people were watching plays that people would want to watch movies. So he optioned this uh, film. It was called Passion Play. It was a religious film. And he put it on in, in Newark, New Jersey, and people were flocking to it. So there was another movie that was being done in France called Queen Elizabeth with an actress named Sarah Bernhardt. They were running out of money. And they went to Carl Lemley, who eventually was part of, you know, owned Universal. And they asked him, he says, I'm not interested in this. He says, but Adolf Zucker is looking to invest in a film. So Zucker invested $40,000 into Queen Elizabeth for the American rights to the film. It didn't matter that it was being done in France because it was a silent movie. He gets it. They put it on at the Lyceum Theater in New York and everybody's going to see this movie. So immediately he, he options a play called Prisoner of Zenda and he puts that into um, production and uh, he you know, runs a studio there and he starts going. The other side of Power Man is a guy named Jesse Lasky. And Jesse Lasky was um, a you know, guy that was on Broadway and he was putting live shows on. And he became friendly with Cecil B. DeMille and Cecil B. DeMille's mother owned like a playwright company. And so Lasky had went to um, DeMille's mother and says, I wanted to hire, they wanted to hire actually his brother and the brother was busy. So they gave him Cecil to work with and Cecil wanted to make movies. And uh, his brother-in-law was a guy named Sam Goldfish who changed his name and became Sam Goldwyn. And Sam Goldwyn was like, we have to get into making movies. And Lasky because movies were not a big thing. So Lasky was like, I make real entertainment. I'm not making movies. And uh, But eventually he succumbed. They optioned a play called Squall Man. And the mill was going to direct, but he had no idea how to direct. So he went to uh, take like a class with Edison for like one day. Still didn't know what he was doing. So he hired a guy named Oscar Apothel. And... They all set out towards Arizona to make this Western. When they get to Arizona, the mill wires Lasky and says, do you mind if we stay on to a place called Hollywood? They go out to Hollywood. They rent this barn for $250. And it was in Hollywood. And the Squall Man became the first full-length feature film ever filmed in Hollywood. So on a $15,000 investment, and this was in December of 1913 was when they filmed it. it. The movie came out in February 1914 and it made over $240,000 when it came out. So you can imagine, you know, $240,000 is a lot of money now. Imagine how much it was, you know, back in 1914. When you had mentioned that barn is still around to this day, it's now the Hollywood Heritage Museum, right? Isn't that the same it is. barn? Yeah. Yes, it is. This is the barn, the original barn that they rented. Uh, it in Hollywood it was in an orange grove patch on Hollywood Selma and Vine Streets in Hollywood, and that now still exists as the Hollywood Heritage Museum. And you can go visit that, and they have 
Cecil B. DeMille's office recreated there. And um, so what happens is that Zucker's making movies, Lasky's making movies, and the movies have no way to get distributed nationally. So they're very limited to where they can put these movies on. In comes a guy named W.W. Hawkinson. He creates the Paramount Distribution Company. So he's going to take 30% and he's given the uh, filmmakers 70% uh, to distribute and he's going to distribute the movies for them. This goes on for about two years. But what happens is Zucker, he doesn't like to split his money with anybody. So this is just irking him. So every time he talks to Lasky, he says to Lasky, have you talked to the guy we're given 30% to? That's how he would refer to Hawkinson. So eventually what Zucker does is he buys up all the stock and he calls a board meeting with Hawkinson there. Now he has all the votes that he needs and he votes Hawkinson out of his own company and Zucker takes over. So he puts a guy in, you know, a guy named Barney Balaban to run the company. So now he owns it and he partners with Lasky. Him and Lasky become part. So it became Zucker's company was famous players. Lasky's company was Jesse L. Lasky motion, uh, motion picture company. And then there was Paramount Distribution. So it was a real mouthful. So what they decided to do was just make everything a Paramount picture. And then what they were doing was anything that was done on the West Coast was a Jesse Lasky production. And anything done on the East Coast was an Adolf Zucker production. But more was being done on the West Coast. And Lasky started getting worried that Zucker would get him out. So he said, why don't we just make everything just a Paramount Adolf Zucker, Jesse Lasky production, Paramount Pictures, and that's what they did. And I'll tell you, and this is a great story, um, I've mentioned Sam Goldfish, who became Sam Goldwyn. Well, he was Jesse Lasky's brother-in-law. So what happens is when they partner up, Sam Goldwyn and Adolf Zucker are both in the New York office. From the first week, Zucker knows he cannot work with Sam Goldwyn, Sam Goldfish. So, and it's a problem. So what Zucker would do was, if he was upset about something, he wouldn't go and address it right away. He would just go out and walk. He would walk all over Manhattan and he'd do this for a couple of days thinking about what he wanted to do. And he would just mull it over and mull it over so he wasn't making a rash decision. So finally, he calls Lasky and DeMille, who are also partners in this company. And, and keep in mind now, this is Jesse Lasky's brother. And he's figuring they're going to tell him, you got to go. Because all these guys are friends and he's Zucker's the outsider. So he calls Lasky and he goes, I cannot work with your brother. He says, it's not going to work. He said, so he says, you have a decision to make and you're going to have to make it right away. He says, it's either going to be me or him in this company. He said, I understand it's your brother-in-law. So if it's him, he says, I'm prepared to go out and start my own company and I'll go on my own. Lasky says to him, I'll get rid of my brother-in-law. And he calls and he fires <laughs> Goldfish, Gold, Goldwyn. Wow. And gets rid of him. And then we never heard of Goldwyn again. Just kidding. And yeah, but he did have trouble working with people because he was he's the, the G in, in MGM. And even though he never worked with them, because he started out with them and then he had to, but eventually he went on his own and did like Guys and Dolls and the Best Years of Our Lives, films like that. So he was a very successful uh, producer, but he just could not work with anybody else. He must have had like a very like crass personality or something. So yeah, we've mentioned kind of the history of Paramount. I want to, for our viewers at home who are listening, who might not know a lot of Paramount films, let's name some notable Paramount films so they they kind of understand what we're dealing with here. The, the greatest movie ever made, according to me anyway, and some of the critics, but The Godfather. Yeah. Um, Titanic was a, a Paramount film. Um, Sunset Boulevard, another mm -hmm. classic. 
uh, Serpico, The Odd Couple, Love Story, True Grit with John Wayne. Um, so, I mean, the list goes on. Yeah, and then even for other people at home too, like a lot of films we do here are older, even in the early days. I mean, we have She Done Him Wrong, we have Duck Soup, which we did on this podcast, um, and then Double Indemnity as well. So in the older days, we have some of those hits. Mazuka believed in the star system. So that's why Paramount had the stars around, but originally the stars around that were the stars that they had signed. So each star represented one of the stars there. So he was grabbing people from Broadway. So people like Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford and, and people like that to work for them. And he had the Marx Brothers, who was Marx Brothers' first film company. Mae West was another big star. Harry Grant worked for Harry Cooper them. So right away, they had a lot of star power. He believed that if he could create the star, people would follow the star's films. Even today, I, I mean, I think I was surprised to even think about Raiders of the Lost Ark, Mission Impossible, Top Gun, just recently Top Gun Maverick. These are all more contemporary films. And then we haven't even mentioned Hitchcock. Like Rear Window is a Paramount film. And a lot of Hitchcock's really excellent work was done at Paramount. At Paramount, To Catch a Thief, uh, um, Dial Him for Murder, uh, a lot of the Hitchcock's. Up until even Psycho was a Paramount film. But at that point, he had a fallen out with Paramount. So they filmed it at Universal, but it was still under the Paramount banner at that time. And then that was his last best Paramount film, but he had his greatest success in Paramount. Lastly, I was surprised by Greece. I forgot that that was filmed at Paramount. It oh, yeah. So, um, such a variety. Chinatown, right. like all of these huge films. So, you yeah, know, Paramount Chinatown, is Chinatown, Marathon, Man, The Bad News Bears. I just watched that yesterday morning with Walter Matthau on uh, you know, one of the cable channels. It was on so it really runs the gambit. Do you think... Um, that Paramount has any sort of niche? What has kept Paramount going all of these years? And what's their niche, do you think? Well, it's, uh, I just think that it's um, a well-run company, a successful company. I mean, they're great to their employees. You know, there was a man named um, A.C. Lyles. What happened was Adolf Zucker went to visit the theater in Jacksonville, Florida. And there was a, a usher there in the theater. It was a, a boy, like, you know, 14 or 15 years old. So he says to Adolf Zucker, he says, someday when I graduate school, he said, I want to come to Hollywood and work for you. So Zucker, being encouraging, he says, I'd love to have you come work for me. He says, stay in touch. Well, A.C. Lyles took that as really stay in touch. So he starts writing Adolf Zucker every single week. So Adolf Zucker's secretary writes him back. And she said, when he said to stay in touch, he didn't mean to write him every week. He just meant like once in a while. So what A.C. Lyles did was he started writing Zucker every week and the secretary every week, <laughs> a separate letter. So he graduates high school. He saved his money. He buys a train ticket and he takes the train out to Hollywood. And he shows up at the Bronson Gate and Security, what are you doing here? He said, I'm here to see um, Adolf Zucker. And they said, for what? And he said, well, I'm A.C. Lyles from Jacksonville, Florida. And when uh, he came to visit the theater, he promised me a job. So they didn't know what to do with this kid. So they called Zucker's office. Of course, the secretary knew who he was because he was writing her a letter every week for years. So she goes, let him in. So they let him in and they gave him a job in like the mail room or something. And he did that. Well, he stayed there for like 70 years until he died. Not in the mail room, but he worked his way up to other jobs. Eventually, he became a producer and he produced a lot of B films. He was very well known. His two best friends were Ronald Reagan, who became president of the United States, and James Cagney. And uh, he just had a successful career. And they asked him once, how did you, how were you able to stay with one company so long when there was a lot of changes uh, through administration? And he said, because whoever was in charge, I always said they were doing the greatest job. So I never was critical. I'm sorry, and I thought that's a good way to be. Be a team player and you'll stay on the team. So I actually want to pivot a little bit. I was looking through your books and 
I love the pictures in these books and they kind of tell a story of what it must have been like to be an actor on the studio lot back in the day. Would you happen to know or want to share with us what a day in the life of a working actor, especially a famous working actor, might have been like at Paramount Studios? Yeah, well, the famous ones and the unfamous ones probably had it a little different. So outside the Bronson Gate, which is still in existence, but you could only see it now if you take the Paramount tour because they shut down Marathon Street and and they made a, like a promenade there. So Bronson Gate used to be the main entrance, but you can't go through there anymore. But what they used to do was the casting office was right there to the right, and the door is still there. So if a guy was like a cowboy or you know some type of character, they would go and they would hang outside the Bronson Gate in the morning. They'd all go out there very early in the morning, they'd hang around, and then they would come out of the casting door, which is to the right of it, and then Edith Head, who... who created a lot of the costumes. Her office eventually became the second floor there. And um, and then they would pick guys out. So they'd say if they needed six cowboys, they'd open the door and they go, you, 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 let's go. And then they would bring them in. And, and then the studio lots, of course, had everything there. You know, there was barber shops and hairdressers and, you know, cafeterias and dining rooms and places to do your clothes. So, you could literally, and it's still like that. You can literally like live on the studio a lot. It's in a world within, within itself. Now, for the bigger stars at Paramount, and these uh, buildings are still there. And if you saw the Paramount show, The Offer, which is about the making of The Godfather, they use a lot of these. Um, this building in the in that show, you see it as offices. But those were originally the dressing room. They called the dressing room buildings. They were across from the, what they call the producer's building. And, um, and they were like little houses. And the people that were, had these, you know, were Elvis Presley, you know, Martin and Lewis, Audrey Hepburn, Grace Kelly, all these great stars that were on the lot at the time. So, so it's, it's a really, it's a, it was a fun place to work. And, uh, when I go around the lot, I still see some throwback things to what they used to have, you know, back in the day, like where the payroll was. There's this one office building that I go in and it still has the chute where they used to put the um, change and they would, because it was heavy, so they didn't have to take it all the way up the steps and they used to shoot it up the steps and then bring it. And then the payroll, as soon as you walk through the Bronson Gate on the right-hand side, it was the payroll building. So if you watch Sunset Boulevard, they shoot a lot on the, they, they do a lot on the lot. And a lot of the stuff that's in Sunset Boulevard is still in existence there. So they're like the writer's building, which they keep talking about knocking down, but it's such a classic building. And they use that a lot for like William Holden and Nancy Olson. And they go up there and that's where like they're writing your stuff and, and you know, writing your, your film that they're trying to do in the movie. And uh, at stage 18, which is directly across from it, and that's very famous stage, very big. Um, Jerry Lewis did the Ladies' Man movie in there, and he built the entire set, which was an entire house, inside that sound stage, which was amazing. If I, if I never saw that film, Ladies' Man's an excellent movie, but it was all done in stage 18. Rear Window was also done in stage 18, and... If that whole set was that was built as one set too. So it was James Stewart's apartment, and then beyond the apartment was the other set of the houses that he was looking at in the street. And that was all done in stage eighteen. And if you go on the lot, you can see you know stages still there. Obviously, they film film a lot in there. And um, when in Sunset Boulevard, when Norma Desmond, the Gloria Swanson character, and she goes on to the lot to see Cecil B. DeMille, that's where she meets him at on stage. You, you see the outside of the stage and you see the writer's building across from it. That was going to be my question. Was that the Sunset Boulevard building as well, the lot that they yeah, issued on? For yeah, yeah. And you can see, uh, if, if you see when they come out of the sound stage and the, their, their choir is there and you see beyond the choir, that building, that's the writer's building. And then that's still there. And, uh, it films it shows like the Star Trek and more modern Star Trek TV shows were filmed there and and um, 
uh, what's it called? The show with uh, Chris O'Donnell and LL Cool J. Is it CSI? Oh, it's one of them. That's done there now. Uh, they still film that there now. And uh, Julia Louis Dreyfus Feet, that was filmed. Like I think one season was done over there as well. Well, you've kind of naturally pivoted us here where Paramount didn't just do a lot of legendary films. They also got involved in TV and have done a lot of famous television programs. Do you want to talk a little bit about like the television background of Paramount and some of the great things that came out of there? Back in the 50s, they started playing around with television and getting into television. They had a news channel that was associated with them. And, um, and but really the, the, the classic television came in the late 60s, early 70s, when they had the Odd Couple TV show, they had uh, Happy Days, they had The Vernon Shirley. And then from there, you, they moved on, they had Cheers, they had Frasier, they had Family Ties, which was Michael J. Fox's big shit, you know, first big, you know, breakout role. So, you know, all these things, I mean, Stage 25 had Cheers on it. And then when Cheers ended, then they got Frasier. And so the same show was on the same sound stage. And Kelsey Grammer was on the same sound stage for, I think, like 20 years, you know, working there. So they called Lucky Stage 25. And that part of the lot was actually the RKO side of the lot. And Paramount bought that around 1967 it was purchased and but when they purchased it it had been lucille ball had bought the her and desi arnaz had purchased that lot and it became desi so uh lucille ball was a uh, contract player for rko and then went on to do i love lucy which was not filmed at on the rko lot or paramount and it was filmed somewhere else but made enough money with I Love Lucy to purchase her first and career RKO. And so I always say to people, it's like going to work as a, maybe a delivery driver for Coca-Cola and then buying the company and owning the company. And uh, so they owned uh, RKO to change the name to Desi Lu. And at that point they started a lot of developing TV shows and Mannix and Mod Squad and and Star Trek. And so all these shows became very, very successful. When Paramount took over, they encompassed, well, and that's how they wound up with Star Trek Paramount because of the acquisition of Desilu. So now what happened with Lucy was she was doing a show after I did Lucy, she was doing a show called The Lucy Show. So it was without Desi Arnaz, it was her Vivian Dance at the beginning. And when Paramount purchased Desi Lu, they also owned the Lucy show. Lucy said, I can't work for anybody else. If I'm going to do a show, I have to own it. So the year that Paramount purchased, you know, the studio was the last year of the Lucy show. So what she did was she came back the next year with the show called Here's Lucy which is very, very similar to the Lucy show, but she owned it herself. And then what she did was she rented soundstage space from Paramount at that point. And then the following year, she moved the entire show to Universal's soundstage. Wow, that's, that's such cool history, all tied in to just like thinking about the television aspect as well. That's really cool. I tell you, when I'm walking around a lot, I could almost hear the old, you know, the ghosts, you know, like of there's a place there called Lucy Park, her office, which was the bow window, which is still there. It looks like the original window, her original dressing room, which had a um, like a circle of flowers around the door. That's still there. And and when I'm there, I just say, like, my God, here's Lucille Ball, whatever, just coming out that door, walking right along here. Or, you know, here's Al Pacino would have been walking down here, or Gary Cooper, or somebody like that. So, you know, uh, there's a great shot of Gary Cooper, Carol Lombard, and Shirley Temple, and they're coming out of where is now like the mill. 
And every time I walk by there, I think of that photo. Jeez, Gary Cooper and Shirley Temple, Carol Lombard, right here. You know what I mean? Right in the same spot. Well, and even Marilyn Monroe, there's a picture in your book about Marilyn, I think, walking by a pond, I think. For, uh, no, well, am I wrong she's, about that? She's walking in what they call Lucy Park. So mm. when Marilyn was there, t- there in that picture, it was a film called They Clash by Night. It was the name, and it was an RKO film. And she's walking along. And where she's walking was actually the, became the facade for Jefferson High School, which was the high school in Happy Days. And it was also, if there's Brady Bunch fans listening, it was also in the same park where um, Sydney sees Greg smoking and Peter punches out Bobby Hinkle for making fun of Cindy. Everything was done in that park, in Lucy Park. So, and that's where you see Marilyn walking. And then also, the Misfits was done in Las Vegas. But when they were finished in Las Vegas, they had some interior shots to film. And they shot those in stage two and three on the Paramount lot. It was not a Paramount film, but they rented the... uh, the space from Paramount, and uh, and that was reported in a book uh, that was done soon after Marilyn passed by an author called Norma Jean. It was the book by an author named Fred Lawrence Giles, who was uh, it's still considered one of the most reliable biographies. On a really personal note, you have a very personal connection to Paramount because one of your good friends was Robert Evans who is credited with turning Paramount Studios around when, you know, everyone thought they might close. Do you want to talk a little bit about that period of time? Yeah, you have three days. We'll talk about Robert Evans. You can't shut me up about him. So he was was the greatest. I mean, I I was very lucky to get to know him very well. And we were very close friends, Uh, you know, so close that I had, you know, free reign around his house and, and um, you know, I was there very, very often. And you know, I mean, I loved the man. You know, and uh, we were just great friends. Yeah, I always told him when I first met him, I said, "Bob, I don't want anything from you but your friendship." And uh, and that's what we had. We were good friends. But as far as his Paramount connection, um, Bob was an actor. He was actually part of a a very well known at the time, clothing company called Evan Picone, his brother and uh, another guy, Picone, they owned this company. Picone was the tailor and his uh, brother was, you know, the businessman and it was very, very successful. Well, Bob started a women's pants division and uh, he was running that and he had to go out to California. He was at the Beverly Hills Hotel and he was relaxing at the hotel and he was in the pool and he was getting all these phone calls and they kept bringing this phone out to him. And Universal was doing a film called The Man of a Thousand Faces, James Cagney. Just happened to be Bob's favorite actor when he was a kid. And the guy comes over to him and he's a young man. He says, are you an actor? And Bob says, well, sometimes I have to be. And he says, well, my little wife would like to talk to you. And here it was Norma Shearer. Noor Mashir was a very, very big star in the 30s and the 40s. And she was married to a guy named Irving Thalberg, who passed away. And Irving Thalberg was one of the most renowned Hollywood producers. They called him the Boy Wonder. He worked for MGM. He had a heart attack. I think he was in his late 30s or something, in the early 40s. And he passed away. Well, in The Man of a Thousand Faces, they were going to feature a character of Irving Thalberg. So Norma Shearer said to Bob, you remind me a lot of my ex-husband. She says, would you be interested in playing this part? So she arranged for him to get a um, screen test. They hired him to play the part. He's there with Cagney, nervous wreck, can't even perform. Cagney takes him for a walk through Universal, calm him down. And now he gets a contract with Fox. But while he's with Fox, He's doing a movie called The Sun Also Rises, and it has Ava Gardner and Tyrone Power and Earl Flynn and all these stars in it. And they all think he's a terrible actor. So out of the six stars that were in the film, five of them signed a petition to say they wanted him off the movie, which is crazy. So he says everybody signed it, but Earl Flynn, he says, because he was too drunk to know what was going on. So... 
Daryl Zanuck goes and Bob's playing a bullfighter and he goes to the bullfighting scene. He sees Bob in it. Daryl Zanuck stands up and he says, very loudly makes this announcement. He said, the kid stays in the picture. Whoever doesn't like it could get the hell out themselves. So Bob realized at that point, I don't want to beg anybody for a job as an actor. I want to be the guy like Daryl Zanuck that's making the decisions. So he leaves acting and he becomes a producer for Fox. Daryl Zanuck starts to mentor him. And a guy named Peter Bart, he does a story about Bob in the New York Times. And there was really nothing to brag about. Bob didn't really have much to brag about, but Peter did the story. Charles Bluthorn, who was a auto distributor, he purchases Paramount Pictures. And Paramount Pictures was really on its heels at this point. It was not making money. They were losing money. Bluthorn buys it, and he reads a story in the New York Times, and he thinks, oh, this guy, you know, if New York Times is doing a story about him, I'll hire him to run the studio. So he hires Bob, and the uh, trade magazines were terrible towards him. I mean, they said the most defiled things about him, uh, you know, you know, they call them Bluthorn's Blowjob, and they said if Paramount was last in uh, of all the studios, it was going to be below last with Bob as the head of production. So he really, you know, had a tall ladder to climb once he took that job. And they had already, Howard Koch had already had um, the Odd Couple movie in the works, but Bob was there at the signing of uh, Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon. But Bob, really, his first big film there was Rosemary's Baby. And what happens is um, it stars Mia Farrow, John Cassavetes, and then he hires Roman Polanski, who nobody knew at the time. You know, so again, you're like, who's this guy that he's hiring for this movie? But he does. To digress, when Bob was at Fox, he, he had purchased a book called The Detective. And so he has the detective. When he goes to leave to go to Paramount, he has to leave the detective in Fox. Frank Sinatra winds up attached to the detective. Mia Farrow is doing Rosemary's Baby. Frank wants Mia to do the detective. So he's calling Evan. She got to be done with this film. And they're going back and forth about this. So Mia was going to leave. And you know, Bob had told the story many times. He comes to him, Brian, oh, Bob, I love him. That's my husband. I got to get off this picture. And, and he said to me, he says, you need this picture. You're never going to work in show business again. You know, like we're too far along. But I don't care, Bob. I don't care. I love him. I love Frank. So um, what happens is Bob says, the only thing I could think of was to um, appeal to her ego. Every actor has an ego. He says, so I asked for all the footage of her, invited her to the screening room. And he says, and she's watching herself in the film. He says, and her eyes are like saucers. He says, and then I said, me, I need you to stay. And she goes, I'll stay on. And Frank Sinatra was so upset with me and fire that she stayed to do the film that he didn't even call her to tell her. He just sent his lawyer to her trailer in New York with the divorce papers. And that's how he ended the marriage. And on Bob's part, he said that he was at the call of restaurants ahead of time in Beverly Hills because if Sinatra was there, he'd start yelling and screaming and create very embarrassing situations for him. But eventually it ended and Bob never held a grudge against it. He always thought that it was more funny than anything else that, that Frank was mad about that. But, you know, what happens with Bob is after Rosemary's Baby is a big hit. And makes Mia Farrow's career, really, it puts her on the map. Puts her and Roman Polanski makes his career as well. And then they had True Grit, and True Grit wind up winning an Academy Award. But they had some other films that weren't making, they were losing money as well. So um, Paramount did a movie called Goodbye Columbus. And there was a girl in the movie that Bob had dated once in New York. And things didn't go well in that first date. But she was a little cocky. And, you know, during the date, he was on the phone a lot. She didn't like that. And it just things didn't go well. So when they got out of the cab, you know, when he dropped her off in New York that time, it was fair to her, that was it. But the girl who was a model, and her name was Allie McGraw, 
she winds up in Goodbye Columbus. And if that's an excellent, excellent movie that's forgotten. But if anybody gets a chance to see Goodbye Columbus, it really, it would be, I'd love to watch you and I to watch it, maybe come on at another show and talk about it. It's such an excellent movie and uh, for its time. So Bob sees the movie and he's starting to like her. And they wind up, Love Story comes along. So one thing that Bob did for Paramount was he purchased Simon & Schuster for Paramount. It was a book company, publishing company. So what they used to do was they would get the books, promote the books a lot, make them very popular, then option the books into a film because everybody already knew the books. It was already, you know. So they had Love Story and uh, Allie was attached to that. He got Ryan O'Neill uh, to play the male, you know, Allie's love interest in it. And then Arthur Penn as the director. And they film it and it becomes the biggest hit of the year. Bob flies to France to get Francis Lay to do the score, winds up winning an Academy Award. And the film makes at the time was like the highest grossing film, $116 million. So it was just unbelievable. The heads of Gulf Western, which was the parent company of Paramount, they wanted to sell off the back of the lot to the Hollywood Cemetery, which borders the wall and they're right next door. So Bob hears this and he's like, here goes my job, here goes my career, if they, they start selling off the studio. So he makes a film, and you can actually see the film, it's on YouTube, uh, but he makes this film and he appeals to the board of directors, flies overnight to New York and he walks into the meeting with the film. And he says, I'm not going to say anything. I just hope these will all watch this movie with an open mind. And in the movie, he pleads with them and he tells them, he says, we have this film love story. He says, we have another film in production called The Godfather. And he says, we believe that these films are going to make a lot, a lot of money. There's no need. Just give me a chance. Don't sell off a lot. And his film was so convincing and He's a very charming guy and very smart man. And he was able to convince them not to. But Love Story makes $160 million, allows them to, the money to produce the Godfather film. Um, so he's the head of production. So his name is not on there as producer. But he, even in this last Academy Awards that happened this year, 2022, Francis Coppola, which finally he did this, was everybody knows Coppola because he was the director, but he comes out in the Academy Awards this year and he says, you know, there's many people involved in the making of The Godfather. He says, and a lot of them, you know their names. He says, the two people that I want to mention, he said, you know his name because it's always on the title and that's Mario Puzo. He said, but the film wouldn't be where it was without Mario Puzo. He says, and the other person, he says, I never mentioned his name. He says, and I feel bad about it. He says, but, and that's Robert Evans. And he said that the, if he did a lot of work on the film and if the film would not be, because Bob went in and he re-edited re -edited the movie and um, he really oversaw everything. You know, Al Ruddy was the actual producer, but Bob was overseeing everything. And he also had nine other films in production at the time while they were doing The Godfather. But I had asked him at the 45th anniversary of the movie, I said, Bob, I said, when you made The Godfather, did you ever think 45 years later, people would still be talking about this movie? And he said, no. What he told me was, he said, when you make a movie, he says, obviously you think it's gonna be good or else you wouldn't be making it. He says, but, he says, you never think when you're making it that 45, 50 years later, somebody would be talking about it. You know, now it's even gaining more momentum. Like they would always say like Citizen Kane was the best film ever made. But now I'm saying when they do these best films ever made, now it seems like it's Godfather and Citizen Kane are like one and two always. And the Godfather seems to be overtaking the Citizen Kane film at this point. And, and it is a masterpiece. It really is. Yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> but I'm curious, um, you know, Godfather is such a hit. Did Robert Evans ever produce a film or, 
you know, become involved with a film that he felt like was a gem that didn't receive all the accolades it deserved? Yes. And that was Popeye. And so that's a good question because he would, anytime it would come up, he would emphatically say to me, that is a good movie. And you're talking Popeye from 1980, Robin Williams, Robin Shelley Williams, Duvall, right? Shelley yeah. Duvall. Yes. He said, that was a good movie. He said, and he said that it was like, the, he blamed it on the publicity department and it got slammed by the critics and stuff. He said, that was a good movie. And what happened was other producers at other studios were uh, like heads of production were allowed to make their own films. When you're head of production, other producers are coming to you going, hey, you know, I have this film, you know, is, is your company interested in making it? So what happens is Bob comes across Chinatown. So he likes the movie and he decides he's going to produce that himself. And he's still head of production of Paramount. Chinatown wins the Academy Award. Now, the other producers are all complaining to Charlie Bluthorn, who was the owner, that they, I don't want to bring anything to Evans because he might want to keep it for himself to produce and, and not us. So Charlie said, who, and Charlie Bluthorn loved Robert Evans. He, he just loved him. And uh, he says to uh, Evans, he goes, why did you have to make such a successful film the first time out? You know what I mean? Like if your first movie, it's an Academy Award winning film. He says, so So anyway, what happened was Bob stopped being head of production and he started to, he put his own shingle out and he became the Robert Evans company. And he did, of course, uh, Chinatown that we mentioned, he did Marathon Man, he did Popeye, he did Urban Cowboy, which, you know, at that time, you know, John Travolta always said, changed the world several times with his movies, which was really amazing. And he did Saturday Night Fever, which I was a kid in Wildwood, New Jersey. But everything became discos in Wildwood. Everybody was hanging mirrored balls and everything became discos when Saturday Night Fever came out. When Grease came out, it set off the 50s craze and everybody's in the 50s. And when Urban Cowboy came out, Everything changed again, and our, every bar was putting in mechanical bulls. People started dressing in uh, Western wear to go out. It was really amazing. And that was Bob's film, Urban Cowboy, which was an excellent film. You know, he did Cotton Club, and in more recent years, Bob did How to Lose a Guy and, and Maze with Kate Hudson, which was a very successful film. So, so he did have a lot of successful films. On, on his his own. Paramount today, what what do you see them doing that's special today? And what do you think like the future of Paramount is? It's a great question. And um, and so relevant right now because Maverick, Top Gun Maverick, just was released this year. Now, February of 2020, I was on the lot. Um, I'm standing in the back of the lot at RKO side. And uh, talking to a guy there, and the uh, door's open. And who comes popping out? The Tom Cruise. <laughs> hey, guys, waves over to us. There's Tom Cruise waving. I said, oh, hey, Tom, goes into a trailer. I said to the guy I'm talking to, what's he doing here? Because Top Gun's done. I mean, yeah. they were finished. Mission Impossible, you know, six or whatever they are on. That was supposed to be starting. And they were feeling that overseas. So he goes out ahead. They're here filming some pickup shots. And I, he said, it's uh, him and Jennifer Connelly are here. The guy was told how to leave. And Tom comes out of the trailer and I strike up a conversation with him. And uh, he says, hey, he says, look, I got to run. He says, because I got to go to this wardrobe fitting for the Mission Impossible movie. He says, but he says, if you're not in a rush, he says, hang around. He says, and we'll talk, you know, when I get back. So I was like, all right. So um, in the meantime, he takes off to go to the wardrobe fitting and some guy pulls up and he's got like 60 pizzas in the bar and I'm starving. Everything's closed on a lot. So I go in, I'm eating the pizza. Tom comes back. They're filming the rest of the scenes for the movie. And when he gets done, him and I are talking, we took some pictures together and stuff. And uh, 
the Top Gun Maverick movie. I said, oh, wow, here now, there, it's a movie made a billion dollars and I'm watching them film the last scenes of it. So that was pretty cool. Um, the movie was supposed to come out that July, July 2020. And, uh, and they wind up pushing it back. And because of the pandemic started. So they pushed it back to November. And then it was pushed to the beginning of the next year, 2021. And then, and they held, well, this year they released it. And when they released it, it's now one of the like, highest grossing movies ever. It's like closing in on, or it may have even surpassed a billion dollars worldwide. It's still in theaters right now as we're recording this, and it's been months. Right. But it was very uh, astute business practice on their part because they knew that that movie was going to make money and they didn't want to release it at a time where people could just watch from home or not go to the theater and see it. And, you know, the type of picture that it is, it's, it should be seen on the big screen, you know, so, you know, with aviation and things like that. So, so, you know, like you really want that surround sound, you want to see it on that big screen and, and every opportunity that I have, you know, there's certain, companies that release movies back into the theaters, the old films that we love, you know, the Sunset Boulevards and the Godfathers and things like that. And uh, I know TCM does it every month. They release a, a film, not a Paramount film, but just in general, a movie in back into the theaters. And I always try to make an effort to go because I feel like in my lifetime, I never got to really see those older films the way they were meant to be seen on the big screen. They weren't made to be seen on a computer or a television screen. They were meant to be seen on a motion picture screen. So I do try to, to make, take that opportunity. And I've been very lucky. I think something I've been spoiled by in LA, I've noticed, especially since the pandemic, there have been so many movie houses that have popped up that are boutique movie places. Um, so they're owned by like, you know, Quentin Tarantino or the American Cinematheque or, you know, Secret Movie Club. There are all these places that only show old films. And a lot of times they make an effort to show them on 35 millimeter, sometimes 70 millimeter if you're lucky. But it's really incredible. Um, I've, the last couple of years alone, I've seen so many films on the big screen that I never imagined I would get to see. So that's like a really cool thing that I hope spreads to the rest of the country. Um, that these prints can be shared because it is really magical seeing films where they're supposed to be seen. In a where they're theater. supposed to be seen in that in that you know venue and seeing it big in the sound. So I actually I know we're like getting close to the end of our time here. So I wanted to ask you: Do you have like a favorite celebrity story that you've heard about a Paramount celebrity? Well, um, there's probably a lot of them, but uh, maybe something about Robert Evans. I know when he uh was watching Goodbye Columbus, he would have other people come in to the like screening room and they would be watching the dailies from it. And he was just so enthralled with Ally McGraw and and it and people described it like he was like a little kid. And you gotta understand like this was a guy like he was so good looking and so charming and he had so many women attracted to him. Like he dated Ava Gardner and he dated Lana Turner. And these women were even older than him. And he was so taken by Allie McGraw. And then when he got to, uh, you know, called her about um, Love Story, did he love story? He said, well, come out. He flew her in from New York. He says, come to the house. He says, we'll discuss the movie. I want you to star in this movie. And it, they were, uh, he was showing her around the house. She had just got there and they were walking around the pool. And as they're walking around the pool, she was a, you know, hippie girl. And, um, she just jumps in the pool with all her clothes on and <laughs> starts swimming. And, and according to what he said, she never left and they wind up marrying. They had a child and, uh, it became a great love story for them for, you know, uh, you know, a couple of years while it lasted. So, uh, uh, but, you know, I, I love that story hearing that. And when I knew him and they had been divorced for many years, but she, they were still great friends and she would come to the house, like, especially if she had to fly somewhere and like lay over in LA, she would always stay at his house like in the guest house or something. But if she was coming, he would be like all dressed to the teeth. Like I would go over and he'd be like, you know, in a bathrobe, baseball cap on. But if like Allie was coming, he had his hair fixed, it was dressed all up, everything. It was like, 
they were on their first date again, you know, and, uh, and I thought, wow, even in his eighties, you know what I mean? Like love doesn't go away. You know? Yeah. That's very sweet. That's Isn't a really that, good that's story. A very yes. story. Yeah. I have one final question for you, which is about your book. So looking through the books, it's got so many great photos. Um, a personal favorite photo of mine is the one of Cary Grant and the commissary drinking a milkshake and making a funny face. I really oh, like yeah. that photo. I love all of the studio gymnasium photos too, like Gene Arthur pretending to jump rope, like things like that. But do you have a favorite photo in your book? I love the one of the baseball player Joe DiMaggio on the stationary bike, which is so unusual. And being a Phillies and a Yankees fan, um, you know, I like that. But my actual probably the favorite photo in, is in the first book, and it's a picture of Adolf Zucker, Jesse Lasky, uh, Sam Goldfish, and uh, Cecil B. DeMille, and a guy named Al Kaufman. And Al Kaufman was Adolf Zucker's brother-in-law, and he ran the theaters for them. And uh, but it's all the guys. Zucker looks so confident in the picture. And they're all on the verge of changing the entire world with what they're going to do in the motion picture industry. And I just wish that I was standing off to the side when that picture was taken to hear what the chatter was and to say, like, do you guys even know what you're embarking on here? Because you're on the ground floor here, but what you're going to do is Zucker lived until 1976, 103 years old. And so he lived a long time. And, uh, you know, he had to meet Bob and the, the second book we did, uh, Bob, Robert Evans, he did the forward for me. And the very first picture in the book is a picture of him with Adolf Zucker. Uh, Bob is a young man, but just when he was hired, he's shaking hands with Zucker. But that's, so that's my favorite photo of all of them together. And, um, you know, it was before, you know, Goldfish Goldwyn exited the company and, they were just here, like, like thinking of ideas and making a lot of money from it. I mean, can you imagine, you know, putting $15,000 had to be a lot of money in 1913. To make $244,000 on a silent movie, you know, like you got to roll that right into something else. You're like, we're on to something here. Like people are so starved for entertainment. And these guys were doing it. So they were the Paramount's the first ones to make full-length feature film in Hollywood, first ones to be distributing full-length feature films in New York, and um, you know, first ones to be starting the star system. And you know, going on this journey, you know, and doing the books, you know, I learned so much more about the company. And each book has, you know, over 200 photos, each in them, very, very rare stuff. A lot of like wardrobe stuff, Frank Sinatra and Elvis Presley behind the scenes. I mean, Elvis did his last film, King Creole, uh, before he went into the army. He finished the film eight days later, he went into the army. And then when he came out of the army, uh, the very first film that he did was GI Blues, which he did that a couple of months after he got it. I did Frank Sinatra's uh, TV show. And then he went to Paramount to do GI Blues, first movie he did even the army in first time that he had really worked besides the TV show in two years. And, uh, so, and that was all done at Paramount, but it's great stuff. Do you see the Bronson gate behind Elvis where the producer Hal Wallace gave him a bicycle and he's getting on the bike, you know, stuff in the Marx brothers, May West, um, you know, Grace Kelly behind the scenes, Lucille Ball. Lucille Ball in her standing, she couldn't sit because her dress couldn't get wrinkled. So she's in her standing chair. Yeah. Yeah. And her standing, isn't that a great picture? Yes. It's a great photo. On the set of uh, Rosemary's Baby with Mia Farrow and Roman Polanski and, you know, just many, many, many rare photos. So anybody that loves show business or loves Hollywood and wants to see something different, these are the books that you're going to see those different images in. And, you know, the story tells itself through the captions. There's a lot of interesting tidbits of information and stuff about that. You know, we tried to put a lot of stuff in there that wasn't common and that people didn't know. Well, it was it was wonderful having you on the show, Michael. And for everyone at home, if you want to check out Michael's books, again, they are called Images of America. We have Images of America Early Paramount Studios and Images of America Paramount Studios 1940 to 2000. 
You can get them wherever books are sold. Um, and you can also get them from Arcadia Publishing, I believe, as well. That's Yeah, that's Arcadia Publishing, uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, uh, Books A Million, or any other bookstore can order them if they don't carry them. Those places normally have them in stock where you can go right to the publisher's website, Arcadia Publishing, order direct from them. And uh, you buy the book, please leave a review. We'd love to hear your positive comments about the book. And I want to thank you. Thanks for having me on. This has been so much fun. We've been talking about this for a while and it's been a lot of fun and I appreciate it. And I love what you're doing here and keeping old Hollywood alive. And uh, especially because you're a young girl and you're introducing old Hollywood to the younger audiences, which is really fantastic. Well, this was such a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, and we'll see you all next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me! My guest this week was Michael Cristaldi. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on anchor.fm to become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for some awesome content and to find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening. <laughs>